Good evening and welcome to the first of three debates among the major candidates for President of the United States. The candidates are Independent Candidate Ross Perot, Governor Bill Clinton, the Democratic nominee, and President George Bush, the Republican nominee. Debate prep continues, friends. On the road to Trump-Biden at the end of the month, we've got another doozy to watch with you. The triple threat that defined the 90s. Of course, I'm talking about H.W. Bush versus Clinton versus Perot. The first of their debates. We're all going to watch it on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. It happens Monday, Labor Day, September 7th, 5 p.m., Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. Follow me right now so you don't miss it. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. everybody to the September 2nd, 2020 edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. A lot to get to today. Biden is loose. He's loose. Somebody left the gate open. Oh, Delaware, you couldn't control the Joe and the Joe has busted loose. He was in Pittsburgh on Monday. He is going to be in Wisconsin tomorrow. Oh, baby. What chased Biden from the basement? What chased Biden from the state? I'm going to talk all about that because I don't think it's good news for old Joe. We will also discuss the death of the Kennedys. And I don't mean the tragic ends. There's so many of the luminaries that define the name, but rather something that I didn't think was possible happened last night. A Kennedy lost in Massachusetts. If a Kennedy can't win in Massachusetts, well, what's the worth of a Kennedy? We will talk about the historic ramifications of one of the great political dynasties possibly coming to an end. And with all the conversation about law and order, with all the conversation about the riots, with all the conversation about the protests, we are going to have a larger meta conversation about police tactics and equipment, and specifically how they have been influenced by the military. And we're going to get to all that. But I want you to listen to this right here because I was uh, uh my, my heart was a flutter this morning after I uh, went into my mailbox and pulled out both for me and my wife the Alameda County Registrar of Voters sending 
official election mail. It felt a little early for our ballots to get here, and indeed it is not our ballot, but rather it is just a little informational uh, flyer, and uh, some of it was actually very interesting. There's a lot of talk in here about, I think, reassuring people about vote by mail. Vote by mail, obviously, something very controversial over uh, the last several months. But the vast majority of this is informing people about being able to set up what ballot you're getting. For example, uh, they tell you to go to a website so you can inform them on what language you are going to get your ballot in. It has a lot of security conversation, including signature verification. This is under the heading recommended options for returning your vote by mail ballot. Voters must sign the voter declaration printed on the return envelope and date the vote by mail return envelope before submitting their ballot. Every signature is verified before the ballot is cleared for counting. If a signature is missing or if the signature does not match the one on file, the county will notify the impacted voter to allow the voter an opportunity to provide a valid signature. Now, that's interesting to me because I've always, and this goes far beyond this voting thing, I've always just kind of wondered why signatures became a security feature as if they're not the easiest thing to forge, right? (laughs) And beyond that, I, I don't know, maybe in the 1800s, you know, well, that's that's Farmer John's signature. I'd know it clear as the daybreak. Like, it might be something like that, but now, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to tell my wife's signature from probably 50 other people in the building. So I don't know whether or not there's some, I, I, I guess... I doubt that there's some algorithm that proves, oh, definitely, this is this guy's signature and not this other guy's signature, at least something that is programmatic, so it wouldn't take forever. But beyond that, what if it doesn't look like your signature and you sent it in on election day? Do they then go back to you and say, hey, you need to provide a signature now if your vote falls within a margin of error? Interesting. But here's what I was the most interested in. Because this is something that I think is big. I think this is something that if it's not universal, it should be universal. This should be considered something that is at the bare minimum something voters can rely on in mass mail balloting elections. Right? So elections where everybody votes by mail, like they do in Washington or in a situation like this where people don't feel comfortable leaving their house, so they're going to vote by mail, but they, but they might not like it. They don't, they don't, that's not the preferred way that they would do it. They would prefer to go somewhere, but they don't want to or they can't, and so they got to mail something in, and that is ballot tracking. So you can sign up to get your ballot tracked at a website called ballottracks.net, B-A-L-L-O-T-T, 
rax.net. And at that point, I, I will either receive automatic email or SMS text notifications about my ballot. Now, I will not be using BallotTracks.net because I am a sweaty nerd who lives for the altar of democracy. I will be going to my, my polling location and I will be voting in a rickety old uh, booth. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. So I will not... Be, be sullied by the uh, mail-in ballot experience. Sure, it's great for a lot of people that actually, you know, have lives, but not for me. I will be, uh, I'll be doing it the old-fashioned way. But I'm curious. I wanted to put this at the top of the show because I want to know how many of you guys have the option to register with ballot tracks. And I would like to know how well it works on election day. But first, this violence of looting and burning and destruction of property. I want to make it absolutely clear. Something very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. And those who do it should be prosecuted. Violence will not bring change. It will only bring destruction. It's wrong in every way. It divides instead of unites. Destroys businesses, only hurts the working families that serve the community. It makes things worse across the board, not better. No, it's not what uh, Dr. King or John Lewis taught. And it must end. Fires are burning, and we have a president who fans the flames rather than fighting the flames. Joe Biden is indeed on the road again. Pittsburgh Monday, Wisconsin, Kenosha tomorrow. I'm not going to go into a whole hide a Biden thing. I've done it enough. I've beaten it into the ground. Uh, so we won't need to do that. However, I do want to talk about the circumstances surrounding this. Because I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's a pre-planned thing that they were like, oh, okay, well, after the the conventions, we're going to leave. Because we got no hint that that was the case. In fact, the word that we were hearing after the DNC was that the Biden campaign had made a decision not to get a campaign plane because they weren't going to be doing enough traveling. They wanted to run as much of this out of Delaware as they could. The first big rumblings you heard after the RNC seems to have given Trump a little bit of a bump is that Democrats were upset that there was not enough counter messaging. And so they run Kamala Harris out on day four. It gets subsumed by Donald Trump's operatic fireworks display. 
That night, we hear Joe Biden during a fundraiser, a digital fundraiser, say that, well, we're probably going to get out to some of these uh, swing states after Labor Day. That's not this week. That's next week that he was planning on going. What happens in the meantime? Well, Jacob Blake shooting. Seven shots in the back. Kenosha, Wisconsin becomes yet another uh, epicenter for riots. We have the continued unrest in Portland. And now, all of a sudden, the national mood starts to turn against the idea of the protesting and the rioting in a way that had not been the case earlier in the summer. Earlier in the summer, we saw the approval rating for Black Lives Matter shoot up like 10, 15 points. We had uh, uh, the idea of protests, the concept of protests were were, uh, uh, in general very well approved of, despite the fact that this was the same audience that uh, was very concerned about the spread of coronavirus. What changed? Well, I think it's what didn't change. The protests and the riots kept going. And the protests are one thing. The riots are another. Fire on television very rarely is something that is met with, oh, that's great. And so, here we are. So, Joe Biden not only sees his margins, which are under Hillary Clinton's in a lot of the swing states, start to tighten, and God knows what he's seeing internally, but also he sees an issue that is eclipsing the coronavirus. Right now, riots are a bigger news story than COVID. And we can have a larger conversation about the nature of humanity and at what point the idea that a thousand people are dying a day becomes something that you get numb to. But we're here now. And I don't think that that's the media. I don't think that that's anything that's within political messaging. Because Donald Trump spent an entire summer trying to to get us away from looking at the coronavirus number. Tried to. Was telling us about Joe Scarborough's dead intern in 1993. Was telling us about Bubba Wallace's uh, noose in the the NASCAR uh, garage. He was doing his best to push us away from it. Couldn't do it. I believe that we've hit whatever tipping point we're going to hit that America looks at COVID as a biblical flood. It's just a thing that's here and we got to survive it. At least in terms of reacting with horror to each daily death toll. Which I will say, personally, is horrifying. (laughs) I do not like looking at at worldometers and seeing four-digit American dead uh, uh, for coronavirus. And, and there's promising signs. Infections are are going down. Deaths are probably slower than we would like going down. We still need to be on guard. 
But the riots are louder. The riots are more present. And all of Donald Trump's at times cartoonish attempts to stand on the other side of it, up to and including him trundling out under cover of uh, pepper spray to awkwardly hold a Bible and unleashing a caravan of Dodge caravans filled with federal uh, troops to try to quell the violence in Portland now seem like markers that he is on the other side of something that more and more Americans are starting to get sick of. Where is Biden on this? Well, Biden's in his basement. Not anymore, though. What you heard at the top of this segment was how Biden seeks to frame this particular issue. And that framing is such. You can't say that you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America when the violence is happening in Donald Trump's America. And we all know why the violence is happening in Donald Trump's America. It is because he's divisive. He hasn't seen a fire. He doesn't want to pour gasoline on. Back when me and Barry were in the Oval Office, we were able to just do our jobs. If there was a federal building that needed protecting, we just did it. And guess what? You never heard about it because you never needed to hear about it. We did it quietly. He caps off this line of thought by saying, honestly, ask yourself, do you believe you will be safer? If Donald Trump is reelected, this is directly turning that uh, attack on him on its face. I don't know how much I love this line of thought. I think it resonates with people that are already going to support him. But if directly turning the attack on you back on him were effective, then the attack on you would not be effective, if that makes sense. If it were perfectly aerodynamic to boomerang, then it would have boomeranged already. Again, Donald Trump's cartoonish attempts to show that he is for more law and order, and it is indeed the Democratic governors and mayors that are standing in his way, at this point are benefiting him. No matter how buffoonish they seemed at the time, and indeed they sank his poll numbers at the time. It is my opinion that now those stand as at least big, loud examples of what he would want to do. And even if you feel a bit queasy on strongman tendencies against American citizens, nightly pictures of buildings in flames are enough to say, well, special circumstances. But that's not my criticism of this. In fact, I'm not even going to start with the criticism. Let's start with the praise. A narrative! Hooray, hooray! Lo, we have walked miles through the desert and seen an oasis indeed. It is big, fat, hairy general election. Look at me messaging. I'm standing in front of a podium and I'm telling you a story like a kindergarten teacher with good night moon. Please explain to the nation fair, Joe, where do you stand and where are you taking us? 
more of this. He's going to do more tomorrow. Who knows what happens past this? But, uh, uh, you know, if some of the polls continue to tighten like we're seeing it, then I think that Joe Biden's going to be on the road a little bit. Maybe they should buy that plane after all. Here's what I didn't like about it. It was a story about Donald Trump, not a story about Joe Biden. And I think Joe Biden has a lane here. I honestly do. I really believe that Joe Biden's lane is, here's the, here's the deal, folks. Donald Trump can't work across the aisle. And that's fine, even in Congress. Like, it gets people reelected in the House. It gets people reelected in the Senate. And as we saw in the general election, it got somebody elected to the White House. But you want to know where it doesn't work? Folks, folks, for real, not a joke. Here's where it doesn't work. When we're talking about things like riots, when we're talking about unrest, you need to have a functional relationship between the federal government and the states. It's the the core, the DNA of the American experiment. It is it is the, the devolution of powers that makes us who we are. But that means that everything can't be about election day. You got to be able to go to these Democratic governors and you got to be able to go to these Democratic mayors. And it doesn't matter whether or not they tried to run against you. You need to reach across the aisle when it's somebody's shop that's getting burned. When it's somebody's life savings that is now evaporated because anarchists want to light something on fire and live out their purge fantasies. Donald Trump can't do that. And we've seen enough now that he would rather score Twitter points than in good faith work with these politicians. Doesn't matter if they like him. Doesn't matter if they're insolent toward him. The buck stops in the White House. And Joe Biden is somebody that has a proven record of working across the aisle. Look at what we did with the economic reto- recovery of 2008. Look at what we did when it when uh, uh, the, the nuclear option was on the table in terms of not funding the government. Who was out there on Capitol Hill making those deals? Sheriff Joe. That's who. So it's riots today. It was COVID yesterday. What's it going to be tomorrow? That's what I would say if I were Joe Biden. If I were Joe Biden, that's the thing that nobody can argue with. It also puts his experience front and center. And now you're not running away from the fact that he's older than dirt. And some dirt looks up at Joe Biden and says, oh, were you my grandfather's friend? It makes him worthwhile uniquely. And that, to me, is part of the story that you have to tell. My issue with his speech on Monday is go ahead and read the text. And aside from the moments where he talks about working in the White House, tell me how much of that speech couldn't be repeated verbatim by Mayor Pete. Because Mayor Pete and Joe Biden are fundamentally, they should be, fundamentally different candidates telling very different stories. And if that speech is generic, 
then what's the point of having somebody who's lived such a rich and experiential life as Joe Biden? Politics. All right, speaking of the polls real quick, I did want to go over some of those numbers because we've gotten a flood of polls that have come in since the Republican National Convention, at least high-quality polls that have come in since then. Uh, some of them are grim for Biden. Uh, uh, we've seen now two Rasmussen reports, one at plus one for Biden, one at plus four. Plus four is the more recent one. An Emerson poll that has Biden up only two. The rest of them are fairly steady. USA Today has him plus seven. Grinnell Seltzer has him plus eight. The Hill-Harris-X plus nine. Economist YouGov plus nine. That does bring his real clear politics average down to 6.3. We will see exactly how well that holds. However, that's not where Joe Biden is worried. And I don't think that those numbers are what chased Biden out of the basement. Instead, it is what we are seeing out of the battleground states, including a Monmouth poll that has Biden up plus three in Pennsylvania. A CNBC poll taken about a week before uh, the, the, the Monmouth one was the 28th through the 31st. CNBC poll has him plus three as well. Let's swing down to the great state of Florida. Sorry for party rocking. Last poll we saw from there was before the Republican convention ending on August 23rd. And that was Biden only up three. Pennsylvania and Florida are big tipping point states for this election. But let's swing back up to the Rust Belt. In Ohio, Biden's average is only 2.3. Michigan is 2.6. Wisconsin is 3.5. All of those are within the average margin of error for the polls that are averaged out, at least the most recent ones. But here's what really... uh, uh, Tightens up your sphincter if you are a Joe fan. That is Minnesota, a state that Hillary very narrowly won that has not had a statewide Republican win in decades, not for governor, not for state solicitor, not for nothing. Most recent poll there, Trafalgar Group, has it a tie. Biden's real clear politics average is 5.3. No polls yet since after the RNC. But you know Biden is focused on it because they are pouring television money into Minnesota. And I will say to the Biden people, good on you. At least you're not pulling a Hillary Clinton and and being too proud to beg and, and pretending like, not spending money in some of these states is going to mean that uh, you're not letting the opposition on your scent. They're worried about Minnesota, and they should be. Because guess where these riots started? Minnesota. If this is a tipping point issue, then this tipping point state will be in play. So... Depends on how much you believe in that. The question that I would ask you, dear PX3 listener, what do you think will be a bigger issue on November 3rd? 
coronavirus, riots and protests, or undecided third issue. Because, by the way, I think it's probably undecided third issue. Politics! When we vote this November, let's all remember, vote for Kennedy. Make him your selection in the Senate election. He'll do more. For- A few moments ago, I called Senator Markey to congratulate and to pledge my support to him and his campaign in the months ahead. The senator is a good man. You have never heard me say otherwise. It was difficult at times between us. Good elections often get heated. But I'm grateful for the debates, for his commitment to our Commonwealth, and for the energy and enthusiasm that he brought to this race. Obviously, these results were not the ones we were hoping for. But to everyone who fought with us, for everyone who stood with us, for everyone who believed in us and gave us their sweat and their tears, their hearts and their souls to this fight, always spend your life in the ring. It is worth the fight. Thank you, everyone. The headline from Politico this morning, the unlikely Kennedy who ended the Kennedy dynasty in losing his Senate race, Joe Kennedy III, has freed his family from a political burden. It struggled to escape. Dear listeners, I hope each and every one of you listening finds an enduring, unrepentant love like the Kennedy family has with the media. (laughs) 70 plus years. 70 plus years the media has carried water for the Kennedys. And even now, as the grandson of Bobby Kennedy, Joe Kennedy III, it's a little confusing because he's not the son of Joe Kennedy Jr. Joe Kennedy is the patriarch, the paterfamilias of of the Kennedy family. He gives birth to Ted, Bobby, Jack, And his first son, Joe, Joe Jr., he died in World War II. So it's not a direct lineage there. Bobby then has a son named Joe Jr. And that Joe Jr. has a son named Joe Kennedy III. He loses after challenging Senator Ed Markey for his seat. It was a primary challenge and Markey won by 11 points. Despite the fact that the... Kennedy legacy is about the young buck running over the old man. If there was ever a situation that would be advantageous to a young Kennedy, it is primarying an 
old person in the Democratic Party. This is how the Kennedy legacy was built. I have done one season of Raise the Dead that is published talking about the Kennedys and more specifically, let's say theoretically, if there were a season two, it would go far more into Bobby, this man's grandson. And yet, the Kennedy couldn't win in Massachusetts. Kennedys don't lose. Kennedys don't lose. Jack never lost. Bobby never lost. Ted never lost. And good God, Ted gave people enough reasons to vote him out. As I watched these results come in last night, I was just kind of sad. It's like when the Yankees are at the bottom of the AL East or the Cowboys, when they suck. There are just certain franchises you kind of expect to win. And whether or not you hate them, they're better when they're good. Because you can hate them more effectively. You can root against them. You can hope that they fail at the highest perch. But Joe Kennedy III left a, a house seat to challenge Markey. It looked like a decent proposition when he did it. Problem is, Markey became super cool. All of a sudden, the old senator who voted for the Iraq war came skateboarding in with a backwards hat and uh, had a secret handshake with the squad. Yeah, co-sponsor for the Green New Deal. So now he's got cred with the kids. And the Kennedy name now looks like a gilded spoon that rich boy wants to step on the progress that is being made by the progressive left. But man, all I could imagine last night is just the force ghosts return to the Jedi style of Jack, Bobby, Ted, and the original Joe Kennedy. But instead of them looking on with bemused smiles as the Force Ghosts and Jedi did to Luke, who had just vanquished the Emperor and redeemed the soul of Darth Vader, they would just be looking at Joe Kennedy like he farted. Like, what are you doing? How do you lose? You need to embarrass Ed Markey. Like, oh my God, I could only imagine a, a young Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy, the age that Joe Kennedy is right now, that guy was ruthless. Ruthless. If you haven't listened to Raise the Dead, in West Virginia, Bobby Kennedy, who, by the way, he ran JFK's campaign. When we think of the Kennedys as ruthless campaigners, we're talking about Bobby. Jack was a great face. He was a fine orator. Uh, Bobby moved the wheels. Now, Bobby was a bit of an unlikable cuss, but there is one thing he knew. Get that win. Win, 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 win. Bump everything else. That was Bobby Kennedy's mantra before J-Rock wrote the song. When the Kennedys in 1960 had to win West Virginia over Hubert Humphrey, Bobby got one of Hubert's best friends to go out on stage and call him a draft dodger. 
All right. This is when like like the war was was just like, you know, around the corner. People were still very sensitive about people who dodged the draft in World War II. And he had his best friend come out and do it. He triangulated, he found the angles, he put the pressure points, and he won. The fact that Joe Kennedy could not feel like an exciting, safer option than Ed Markey, even down to the idea, look, either you got to co-op the Green New Deal or you got to destroy it. Go, go. People don't realize, people think the Kennedys is his regal Camelot kind of thing. And that's fine. Ted coasted. At the point that Ted is in the Senate, Jack's dead, Bobby's dead, they both got killed. The Kennedys are royalty in Massachusetts, so he coasted. That's fine. So people just think of the Kennedys as Ted Kennedy, the 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 the, the family that got fat on on all of this uh, fame and adulation and support and empathy. But the originators. The people that built that, Joe, Bobby, Jack, killers. Killers. Bobby terrorized a sitting president so effectively he wrote a resignation announcement and then said, nah, and just ran for Senate in New York with two months lead time and won. That's who we're talking about when it comes to the Kennedys. They try for the best, and then they get it. But we've come a long way since then. This is the 60th anniversary of the 1960 election, the the moment when the grand plan of Joe Kennedy, the original Joe Kennedy, came to fruition. He put his son in the White House, the first Catholic president. And now it's dead. Yet another reboot that fails to capture the magic of the original. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you guys so much for supporting this show. Uh, Did the numbers for August, obviously convention month. Uh, Not only did we have over 15,000 hours watched over uh, the, the month of August, which is great. It's amazing. Thank you guys so much. Uh, So many of you for coming and watching everything live, but we also had podcast download numbers that were comparable to when I was on the road out in February. And, and that is awesome. It really makes my heart weep that I couldn't be on the road for you guys with the conventions, but still thank you for supporting the show. Now is the time to proselytize. Go and tell your friends. Go and let everybody you know uh, uh, that's like, oh, I'm trying to, I'm thinking about what, where to get into the politics stuff. PX3, PX3, PX3. That's where you need to go. Just grab their phone, download it for them, hit subscribe. Greatly appreciated. If you want to keep this show going monetarily, takepoliticsseriously.com. Again, takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 level gets you two bonus episodes every week. One on Monday, one on Thursday. TakePoliticsSeriously.com
Our guest today is Stuart Schrader. He is the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing. He is also a lecturer in sociology at Johns Hopkins University. We are going to talk about not only how policing has been affected by military conflicts throughout the last several decades, but also how tactics in terms of corralling and at sometimes possibly mismanaging public demonstrations have been affected by the same phenomenon. I want to let you all know that this was recorded on August 12th. So it's been a couple weeks. It unfortunately got caught under the tide of the conventions when it didn't really fit. So this is obviously a hot button issue right now. Just do not expect any conversation about the stuff that has happened in between August 12th and today. But with that being said, we will welcome Stuart to the show. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the police, a major, major, major uh, topic of conversation since the George Floyd incident and Breonna Taylor uh, uh, incidents. Part of what going forward people are talking about is how the police do their job. But you can't really look at that without understanding partly where the situation is now. And, and that's what you've written your book about in terms of how the police have become more like the military increasingly. Uh, where did this trend start? Well, I think that we can look at almost every war that the United States has been involved in over the course of the 20th century and then into the 21st century and look at the aftermath of those wars and find that there has been uh, increased adoption of military style gear and also certainly the um, employment of veterans from those wars in the police profession. But I think that when most people refer to the militarization of policing, they're talking about transformations that have happened since the 1990s and particularly after September 11, 2001. What people referred to, which really I think, you know, arrived on everybody's, you know, screens uh, in, in 2014, 2015, 2016, the, the first round of Black Lives Matter protests was the you know the, the appearance of police wearing body armor, camouflage, driving mine-resistant trucks, um, you know, wearing wearing helmets, and and of course carrying these very intimidating-looking weapons. And and the origin point for the adoption of, of that type of gear um, was was the 1990s, the 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 Bush and, and Clinton administrations, when the military itself took on uh, counter-narcotics role and um, legislation was introduced to facilitate the transfer of surplus military gear to uh, civilian law enforcement agencies. And, and if you can just lay that out in a little bit more detail, like how does a police department get military gear? Is it just in, you know, to, does it just show up in like a, like a, like a U-line uh, uh, catalog or do they get solicited in an email? How does this happen? 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not the, the purchasing officer in a sure. department, so, so some of the details um, uh, escape me. But, but there's basically, I would say, three major sources. The first, of course, is that police departments can buy their own gear. And the, the major limitation on that is, is the, the budget. But you can, you can be certain that after these uh, protests and uprisings have occurred, uh, the mailboxes of police departments have been full of catalogs from um, you know, weapons manufacturers and gear manufacturers saying, well, guess what? Now you, now you need our stuff. And so some of that certainly has been happening. And, and police departments have been quite successful at um, you know, convincing the elected officials who, who decide what their budget should look like to, to you know, fund them fully so they can buy as much gear as they need or, or, or think they need. When they can't afford to buy the gear, that's where you know alternate sources come in. One is private philanthropic uh, donations. Some of the even most well-funded police departments, like the NYPD, still rely on foundations to supply them with with certain types of gear that they um, claim to need, including bulletproof vests, for example. And then the other source is is the, the federal government. The Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, they, of course, provide grants that, that will issue various types of materials to police forces. And then you have the surplus material gear coming from the Department of Defense. And typically, it's referred to as the 1033 program. That's the, the name is derived from the piece of legislation that um, Congress signed in the 1990s. And the 1033 program basically allows uh, police departments to, to get gear from the Department of Defense for free. Uh, usually the, the only cost is, is the cost of shipping. And when, when, when we're talking about this gear, one thing that's important to point out is that it does include the intimidating looking um, body armor and, and trucks, but it also sometimes includes you know, really basic office supplies. There are, you know, reports about police departments getting coffee makers or getting desks, um, you know, totally mundane stuff that just because the Pentagon has such an absolutely massive budget, uh, it, it, it has extras of and, and um, they, they're not always in use. And so they're, they're happy to pass them along to police departments. And there's one further thing to note, which is that the, the materials fall into two different categories. One category, the material is passed along to the police departments and it becomes police department property. And the other category is that it remains property of the Department of Defense. So in theory, that, that material that, that is still the property of the Department of Defense, they could reclaim it at any moment because it's only on loan to police departments. Um, and we haven't seen a huge amount of this kind of reclamation of material, but there were some moves toward that after the, the first round of, of Black Lives Matter protests under the Obama administration to um, have, have the Department of Defense get some of that material back. And I, and I think that, that we're, we're going to continue to see calls for, for that to happen. So when we're just talking about the equipment specifically, I'm sure there were some people that are listening that are like, well, look, if they're walking outside in a Speedo or a Power Rangers Megazord, how does that affect the crime that is around them? 
how, how does the preparation of the police, even if there is a measurable uptick in how intimidating the gear looks, how does that affect how they do their jobs? It's a good question. And, and you know, a number of researchers have looked into this. Um, there's a scholar named Peter Kraska who's done really interesting work um, trying to figure out exactly what are the effects of police militarization. And, and I think that what, what we find is that there's a, there's a disparity between the justification, which is typically that um, people in the United States, gun owners and, um, and, and you know, various types of people who police might encounter are themselves really well armed. You know, there's, there's a, a lethal arsenal that exists out in the world and police need to be prepared to confront this, this lethal arsenal, this you know, heavily armed public uh, populace. But the, the, where the disparity comes in is that we see these you know, heavily armed officers in, engaging in raids and, and using this equipment when there really isn't a severe threat, when, when the situation isn't an, you know, a dire emergency, you know, hostage taking or, or a, you know, even an active shooter type of event, they end up using this material in, in very mundane everyday forms of policing, you know, serving warrants and so forth. And oftentimes, you know, just serving warrants um, ends up being a situation where the, the, the gear, the you know, dressing in a kind of military style outfit pushes the notion into police officers' attitudes, into their mindsets that they are going to war. And so, you know, a, a basic serving a, you know, serving a warrant type of activity ends up turning into uh, a firefight or, or, or at least sometimes a, a one-sided firefight because, you know, the gear helps the officers or, or compels the officers to, to think that they're engaging in a, in a combat-like situation when, when that really isn't true. And oftentimes it's, it's quite possible to serve a warrant um, without any, any type of you know, aggressive and um, tactically sophisticated approach that the, the military gear seems to um, suggest that is necessary. Your book not only covers the gear, though, it's also strategies, that, that there are elements of our modern wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan that have made their way to our American streets? Yeah, absolutely. My, my book mainly focuses on the period from 1945 to 1975, okay. but I, I show in, in, in the book that um, police in that period, Amer American police in that period, were were quite active all around the globe, training and advising and equipping police in in other countries. And and the understanding in that period, you know, that was the Cold War when when the United States was worried about the prospect of communist revolution um, in in the so-called third world. Police were were being used to prevent the outbreak of um, guerrilla insurgency and and revolutionary movements. So the, the strategy, and, the, and, the, and again, the mindset was very much that there is a, a political enemy that needs to be controlled, contained, 
uh, neutralized and destroyed, and police should be used to do that. And and what I show in the book is that this this led to the development of new types of technologies, some of them pretty simple and some of them more advanced. A, a, a simple one would be, you know, an example would be the, the, the walkie-talkie, which was, uh, you know, a, a kind of ubiquitous police technology today, but but it was, um, it, its use was, was refined and the technology was refined in the, the overseas setting of, of what they called counterinsurgency back then. Um, but then, of course, there are more sophisticated technologies like helicopters, which also are ubiquitous today among big big city police forces. Um, but once again, they were they were originally tested out and 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 refined in in the setting of counterinsurgency. So when there was political unrest and upheaval in the 1960s, um, of course, around the the issue of of racism and racial injustice, Many of the police figures that I look at who were who were active globally then brought some of their expertise back home and, and tried to help devise new methods of uh, policing, crowd control, riot control, and so forth, which were which were inspired by the lessons they took from their their time engaged in counterinsurgency in the so-called third world. So let's let's drill down on that for a second, uh, mostly because I'm kind of in the middle of some research uh, about those riots specifically. Uh, these are at least part of them. Uh, in 1964, uh, there's uh, summer riots in New York City, Rochester, across the Hudson in New Jersey, and, and they uh, pop up throughout the country. Uh, I, I was struck by how similar the patterns of those uh, those protests that then turned into riots and uh, began because of incidents between black Americans and police. Uh, and in, in the case of the, the Harlem riots in 1964, a dead child uh, or dead teenager. Uh, are you saying that, that part of these new strategies that, that uh, were employed then were, were in relation to these, uh, these, these riots and uh, that, that, is there any evidence to say that they helped or hurt the situation? Yeah, um, I, I look closely at, at the 1964 uh, uprising in Harlem, and as you say, it was it was uh, incited by by a off-duty police officer killing a, a black teenager. And um, what happened was that there was a series there was a series of protests that followed demands for some kind of accountability for the officer to be fired, to be, to be held, um, you know, liable for this death. And the police refused, the mayor refused. And so the protests didn't dissipate. In response, police became violent towards protesters and the violence um, intensified really quickly to the point where police were firing their guns at the crowds. Of crowds of protesters were were liable to get shot. That pattern uh, repeated itself many times over the course of the 1960s, where there was a, a precipitating incident of police violence, um, protests in response, and the protests were then met with with serious violence on the part of police. Now, in 1968, when uh, 1967, 1968, when the Johnson administration 
um, put the, the Kerner Commission in place to investigate what was going on with, with this, this unrest that had happened, particularly in Detroit and Newark in the summer of 67. Well, the Kerner Commission came back and found that on the one hand, the protests were the result of um, grave inequality, you know, in, in terms of um, e economic and, and, and social inequality that, that affected African-Americans. But they also, you know, found that, that there, there were these precipitating incidents of police violence and, and police violence continued to um, make, the, make the, the protest worse and intensify and lengthen their duration. So the recommendation that they came back with was, unsurprisingly, guess what? Police officers shouldn't fire guns at crowds because that only makes them <laughs> more um, angry and, and more, you know, makes, makes the unrest worse. So how, how can police disperse crowds uh, without firing their guns at them or using batons or using bayonets? Well, the recommendation is to use tear gas. Now, of course, tear gas already existed at this point, but in the 1960s, a new form of tear gas was, was being tested, and it was primarily being tested in South Vietnam by the U.S. military. So starting in 1968, police in the United States, based on the recommendations of the Kerner Commission and, and, and other um, you know, expert voices, uh, police start adopting the, the use of this new, new more, more kind of virulent form of tear gas called CS. And CS is, 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 has become the standard, and that is the chemical that is being used or has been used to a really great extent over the past couple of months. You know, the New York Times reported that it, it's been used in, in at least 100 towns and cities across the United States in, in the past couple of months. And, you know, it, it's become normalized almost to, to an extent to, to think that police will deploy CS against crowds. Now, on the one hand, I would certainly argue that the... Um, use of CS is probably better than firing their guns. <laughs> Upgrade over bullets. Upgrade over bullets. Yeah. I'm going to go out and say, I'm going to take the bold stance and say that whatever your thoughts <laughs> on, on CS, uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, better than a bullet. Exactly. But on the other hand, it's, it's also extremely unpleasant and it's hard to, it's hard to um, make sure that it, it hits the, the target, all kinds of people who might be bystanders, journalists, um, people just in their houses you know, are, are liable to, to get enveloped in these the, the clouds of this chemical, and that's been happening with great frequency. So, so what is the result? Well, protesters change their tactics, and I think we've seen that happen um, to a great deal. And, and just the last thing I'll say about this, to, to bring it back to my own research, is that the recommendation to, to use CS, not only was it being tested in South Vietnam, but the recommendation, again, came from these policing experts who were active in counterinsurgency Overseas, they said, "Hey, look, we're recommending that other governments around the world use CS. Um, we think that that the police in the United States should use it as well, as well." And that is what actually did come to pass. But the change in tactics of protesters that we're seeing today um, also happened in the 1960s around the globe, where the the you know massive use of of CS that just made public demonstrations and protests in some cases impossible or at least very unpleasant. You know, that also led protesters to take on, um, you know, new tactics and even go underground and start engaging in um, all kinds of uh, kind of wild and cinematic uh, behaviors. So, so you know, th this, this, this kind of cycle of police response to crowds, crowds changing their tactics, 
and new forms of protest emerging is one that I think we've we've already seen. We know it's 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 a pattern that that is is quite common, and, and we're witnessing it happen right now. How much of this is cyclical? Because it, it seems like obviously the the level of massive national unrest that we are seeing now is something that uh, obviously there were Black Lives Matter protests in 2016. It's not totally foreign, but I can't remember it on a national level like like this. And that's what kind of led me back to some of the research in the 60s because it seemed more in place then. uh, And yet it seems like we are kind of running on about the same uh, uh, track of, of lessons of, of how this should go and uh, uh, whether or not you know, the ways that we control crowds now are, are the right ones, but it's not a persistent lesson. It doesn't happen often enough for people to remember the full story. They kind of have to experience it up to a certain point. Is that consistent with your research? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, certainly it was the case that after 1968, the, the number of, of uprisings that, that has happened over the, you know, the previous four years after, after 1968, that there were not nearly as many. And, 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 you know, when, when there was an uprising in, in Baltimore in 2015, the police, uh, you know, went into their supply closet to get out their riot control gear. And what they found was that the material that was in that supply closet had, it had been sitting there since 1968 when they first, you know, resupplied the, the, their stocks. Um, and, you know, there hadn't been an uprising basically in the interim. So, you're right that that the the ability for police to um, kind of you know learn lessons and, and apply lessons um, oftentimes it seems challenging because it's 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 often a, a quite a long time between these these, these waves of, of uprisings. At the same time, it does feel like we're experiencing an acceleration of of if there is a cycle to it, it's accelerating. You know. We're now five five years in between this this kind of um, widespread uprising breaking out. But but I also think that you know we we can mislead ourselves if we think that it's it that it being cyclical means there's going to be a simple repetition. What we have seen in 2020 is absolutely not a repetition. It's a massive expansion, and I think really the character of the uprisings um, in terms of who's participating in them, where are they taking place. And um, how how long lasting they are. I think you know this is really different. Certainly, in terms of who's who's participating, the the crowds are extremely diverse demographically in terms of um, race, gender, and other indicators. Where they're taking place, they're certainly taking place in, in small towns across the United States, and and then in big cities, they're not taking place only in. Um, black or Latino neighborhoods are taking place in the kind of grizzly shopping areas. Um, and and in terms of the, the length and duration and intensity, um, as well as the tactics, I think we're just seeing new new innovations, you know, where not only are the protesters, you know, say if, if, if the police are, are blocking them from going to one location, well, then they regroup in a new location. If the police are not letting them march, well, then they they take take uh, take the bicycle and they they do protests via bicycle. If the police won't let them march or ride bikes, then they decide to occupy a a, a square or something. You know, th- these types of innovations are are happening really rapidly. Um, and 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 also, I would just say that that 
with the duration of the protests, um, protesters are becoming, you know, I, I don't know if battle-hardened is exactly the right term, but it, it certainly feels that way that um, protesters are no longer responding to the crowd control techniques of police in the same way that they had previously. And, and it's just to say that, you know, the first time a, a flashbang grenade or, or a tear gas grenade, you know, explodes near you, it's scary and, and you might run away. The fifth or sixth time, or even the tenth time, night after night, protesters become less intimidated. And I think that ultimately is is what uh, led to, in part, the, the federal law enforcement agents in Portland basically being defeated. They just couldn't keep using the same tactics because protesters, um, you know, were not only somewhat immune to them, but um, but they were able to kind of reconfigure their tactics and and um, and be, be persistent in ways that the federal law enforcement agents weren't really um, able to deal with. Of course, the, the local police have, have taken their place and, and the protests are continuing. Yeah. So let me, let, let, let's get into that. And, and this might not be your, your full area of expertise, but you certainly are well-versed on it. Uh, I know that the difference between federal and local law enforcement is great when it comes to charges you can levy. A federal charge is more significant than a local charge. But in terms of tactics, it sounds like what you're telling me is that the federal police would be using the same kind of strategies uh, strategies that the local police would be using, right? Well, honestly, it's 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 we're kind of in a in a new zone because we haven't really seen uh federal law enforcement officers engaged in kind of crowd control, riot control uh, on, on this scale ever before. Um, you know, when in the 1960s, it was not uh, the border patrol that was, you know, sent in to, to, do, to do crowd control. It was, it, it was local police, sometimes state police, and then army and national guard in, in a few situations. Um, although, you know, typically those, those federal forces, they usually arrive a little bit too late to really have a, a huge impact. The National Guard generally um, made everything worse. <laughs> but um, in this, in 2020, you know, we're, we're seeing the deployment of, of these officers. Now, it's, 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 it's certainly not the, the, the first time, but at least to the, the extent that, that it's happened, it, it's pretty remarkable. And one of the things that people, you know, have, observers have, have noted is that there's no clear evidence that the federal law enforcement officers who are being deployed have any unique or specific training in, you know, crowd or riot control. And that, that therefore, you know, leads some people to say, well, this, this is a misallocation of resources. I, I don't. I don't really. I wouldn't make that critique. I don't think yeah. the problem is that they're that they're not properly trained. I think the the problem is that they're being deployed for a purely political purpose to kind of um, you know wage war wage war on protesters uh, for the the purpose of, of the president's reelection campaign, um, and that that that's a problem. And certainly using federal resources, which are essentially unlimited, to um, you know, go up against protesters is 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 quite scary because um, I, I think what we've seen again to go back to the kind of cyclical character of it, we, what we saw was 
a little, a little deployment of federal law enforcement in Washington, D.C., followed by a much larger deployment in Portland, and then the threat that there would be an even greater and more widespread deployment of federal law enforcement officers um, throughout the country in cities led by Democrats that also tend to be majority Black cities because it's, again, part of the president's um, kind of political campaign um, against against black mayors, against black populations in, in these cities. That's a, a very scary prospect. And um, it, it has it, what makes it scary is not that these officers might be, you know, improperly trained in, in crowd control or, 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 you know, misdeployed because they should usually be deployed at the border or something like that. Well, a lot to chew on, and it was given to us very expertly by Stuart Schrader, the author of Badges Without Borders, How Global Counterinsurgency Transformed American Policing, published by University of California Press in 2019. He's also the Associate Director of the Program in Racism, Immigration, and Citizenship, and a lecturer in sociology at Johns Hopkins University. Stuart, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And that will wrap us up for this Wednesday's episode. A few notes. Number one, a poll came in literally as we were recording this that does show a rosier picture for Biden. It's a bit of an outlier, but has him up 13 nationally and has uh, him up 13 in Wisconsin and plus seven in Florida. So, want to be fair. Uh, Biden also speaking and taking questions in Wilmington today. So it, it seems like he is trying to keep his uh, uh, visibility up a lot more than he was sitting on Zoom in his basement. Man, imagine if he had done that like all summer. Huh. I think that would have been better or worse. I think it might have been better. I don't know. I don't know. Here's what I do know. I love our Titanic $10 tier. And by the way, if you are in the Titanic $10 tier, check your email because uh, we're going to do another nickname check. If you guys uh, want to change your nicknames uh, during this, uh, now is the time. Head over into the email that you have connected to your Patreon. But we'll do one last read of the old ones. Modesto's own Logan Cisco, N.H. Blumkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water Eyes, Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Wicked, Uncle Shig, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie, Doc Berkeley, Steven, your boy Craig, Troublefilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex, Mitchell, Severio, Martin, Jacob, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Jerry, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Jen, The Crab in My Pants, Olin and Angela, DL, IPoopMyPants.com, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Richard, Jim, Ben and Ellen, Jay Pink, and Andrew. If you want to join their ranks, you head on over to Take Politics Seriously.com. A reminder that this Monday we continue our debate prep. We are watching legendary old debates, and this is one you're not going to want to miss. The three-way dance. Ross Perot, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton. The first debate that featured three men on stage on television. We had a great time last week. 
uh, head on over to the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. And if you missed, if you miss it, which you shouldn't, we might have a solution on, on how to listen to our breakdowns uh, coming, coming soon. We're working on that. Uh, if you want to get our free political newsletter, it is at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. If you want to follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter, it is at Justin R. Young. You want to send us an email for the mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Until next time, this is your old boy, Justin Robert Young, telling you that some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more Baby, they're talking about politics, but this is the only program that dares talk about ho Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>